Coming Back is a listener-supported podcast. To support the show and get exclusive access to live grief support, podcast stickers, giveaways, and so much more, head on over to patreon.com slash shelbyforsythia. Support the show for as little as $1 per month and change or cancel your support at any time. Thank you so much for listening. Hi there, and welcome to Coming Back, a podcast about coming back to life after death, divorce, diagnosis, and more. On today's show, I'm talking to Elisa Forneray, a fellow member of the Dead Moms Club and the creator of Dead Moms Club Pins. Also on the show today, I'm talking about ways to cope and manage when people in your life use their grief to hold you hostage. I'm Shelby Forsythia, an intuitive grief guide who speaks, writes, and teaches powerful truths on grief and loss. My mom's death in 2013 set me on the path to becoming a lifelong student of grief, and I use what I learned to equip others with the knowledge to heal and remind them that they are not alone. Because even through grief, we are growing. Let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coming Back. Thank you so much for being here with me today. Just a quick reminder that this month's live Google Hangout is happening February 25th at 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. If you are a listener of the show looking for a little extra grief support or just a monthly touch-in with fellow listeners of this podcast, all you have to do is pledge just $1 a month or more on Patreon to access the link to join us. I'm taking your questions live for a full hour and... It almost always turns from a Q&A into a conversation where all of us get to support each other through whatever challenges we're facing in this month. And then we get to come back again every single month with each other. So this week, Grief Growers, I want to talk about something that's a little stickly and prickly in grief. In very bold terms, it could be phrased as people weaponizing their grief, but I like to refer to it more as a hostage situation. Sometimes grief growers, people use their grief to hold us hostage. And what this looks like, what I'm talking about is people using a loss or a grief story to make you do, say, or be something you really don't want to do, say, or be. I've seen and heard stories about people's parents asking them not to move away from home because they've just lost a spouse, uh, guests at hotels or resorts asking for discounts or special treatment or free upgrades because they've just suffered a loss or even friends guilt-tripping their other friends, their support networks into being around at their every beck and call because they're going through something hard, like right down to calling or even showing up at their house at two or three in the morning. What makes these scenarios different from asking for help or grief support in a kind and genuine way is how the grief and the request comes across. Oftentimes, these are more commands than they are requests. And even more oftentimes, the burden of making someone feel better in their grief is foisted onto other people where it really doesn't belong. As in, if you don't do this for me, you're going to either continue my grief or make it worse. Don't be the person who breaks my heart. Don't do this to me. It's a gross feeling, isn't it? And we end up doing or saying or being things that we really don't want to be so that this person won't fly off the handle at us or so that we won't start confrontation or that they won't tell 
the other people in our lives that we're the root cause of their pain and we're breaking their hearts. So like, what a gross and prickly situation, right? Now, I've been lucky not to encounter much of this in my work or in my personal life, but I do hear stories about it. And from the stories I hear in the situations that I've been in, I can tell you that people who use their grief to hold other people hostage need a wide berth and lots and lots and lots of grace, which based on their behavior isn't something they really deserve, if I can say that out loud. Um, but it's something that's warranted in this situation. Because at its worst, this behavior can be labeled abuse or manipulation. And at its best, it can be labeled, as Megan Devine so eloquently put it in episode 41 of Coming Back, behavior from poorly boundaried people. So what do you do when you're dealing with someone who uses grief to hold you hostage? The first thing that I would recommend, based on hearing the stories of others and from the limited experience that I've had, is to set your own boundaries. Ask yourself outright, draw some lines, what are you willing to do, what do you have time to do, and what can you afford to do? Setting concrete limits, especially around behavior, time, and money, go a really long way in preventing or even avoiding hostage situations. Things like, I'm sorry I can't be the person to drive you to your chemo appointment, whether you don't have a car or you have to work that day. I have to work that day. But I can help you find somebody who can take you to your chemo appointment, or I would be glad to be the person to coordinate a Lyft or an Uber for you on a regular basis. Those things can be scheduled and set up in advance. I'll pull in a phrase here that I heard over on Gretchen Rubin's podcast, Happier, where she says, saying no might not feel great, but saying no to one thing means you get to say yes to another thing. In this case, it might be saying yes to your time, yes to your role at work or your responsibilities at work, or just to your capabilities. And the big trick with boundaries is that you have to hold to them once you've set them, because while setting boundaries is a lot about protecting you and your space and your time. It's also about teaching other people what they can and cannot expect from you. So it's really important that those boundaries are set and that they stay firm across time. The second thing that you can do with these poorly boundaried people uh, using grief to hold you hostage is to give them lots of space, either literally or figuratively. If you are in close contact with this person, if they're a coworker, a relative, a friend, or even a spouse, it might be helpful to use what I like to call the bowl visualization that I teach in my grief coaching programs. Simply, this is an invisible bowl that floats between you and the person you're talking to as you're talking, where each of you can dump your griefs and concerns and pain points and just everything that hurts. And it puts invisible energetic space between you so that you aren't taking a total beating from their grief story. Their grief and their pain isn't landing on you. It's landing in this bowl. And so you're not taking on their pain as your own. It does not belong to you. You can look at it. You can change it and move it around. You can ask questions about it. It's out there in front of you, but it's not entering you. If you can physically get away from this person by moving cubicles or scheduling in some me time once a week or hanging out with friends as a group instead of one-on-one, -on -one, use those physical distancers as well. When you feel like you can breathe through having more space, you can be a better support to this person and you can get a better grip on your boundaries when you don't feel so sucked in to their story and their pain. The last thing that you can do when faced with someone who is using grief to hold you hostage is to call in reinforcements. If you need help 
get help. You are just one human in the world and no one person is meant to be the solo shoulder that somebody, pardon my friends, shits all their grief on. Like, we all know how hard it is to be grieving. And if we were only allowed one person, no support groups, no podcasts, no books, no other friends, the process of grief would be an enormously strained and even toxic relationship to be working through. So call in other relatives and friends and maybe even professionals to help support this person in their grief. When it's distributed across multiple people and even multiple platforms, grief becomes lighter for everyone who's involved to carry. And of course, if the relationship borders or even falls into the category of physical or emotional abuse, call a local domestic violence hotline in your area. There's one in every single state in the United States. I'm not sure about internationally, but there are uh, online support systems as well. And even if this situation of abusiveness is not happening with an intimate partner, like somebody you share a home with, they would be able to have some wonderful resources to turn to, whether they can provide them themselves or if they're part of a network too. Witnessing grief hostage holders, I know that deep in my heart and soul that they're not bad people. They're just, as Megan Devine says, poorly boundaried people, expecting others to heal them when they need to do at least some of the work for themselves. No one person can fix another person in grief. It's just not possible. And sometimes it's much easier to play the victim and stick our quills out and blame other people for our garbage grief feelings than it is to sit with them and look at them and do the work of coming back ourselves. If someone in your life is holding you hostage with their grief, please reach out to me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. Of course, you can also share your story with us and get group support in my private Facebook community for listeners of this show, which is called The Grief Growers Garden on Facebook. And I am sending so, so much love your way this week, grief growers. Up next, my interview with Elisa Forneray, creator of the super cute and super meaningful Dead Moms Club pins. And of course, so, so much more. One of the most helpful things I've found in my loss, grief growers, is a witness to my journey. Beyond feeling that I'm not alone, although that's extremely helpful in the aftermath of loss, I feel like by sharing my story with someone else, I have a sounding board, a guide, and someone who's just a little bit farther ahead on the road than I am. There is camaraderie and small, growing strength and confidence in finding a grief coach who can companion you, walk alongside you, and you're coming back. I want to be the person to hold this space for you on a one-on-one level. If you're looking for more focused attention on your heart, whether you're coping with death, divorce, diagnosis, or something else, please head to shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching to receive more information about the types of grief coaching I offer and to fill out an interest form. That's shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. I'm here to be your companion, toolbox, and shoulder in grief. You can also find a link in the show notes. Elisa Forneray is a creative whose works focus on grief, support, 
In 2016, her mom died, and she realized that many of the grief resources out there didn't have a voice that she could relate to. So she created her site and the Dead Moms Club lapel pins for others who wanted a creative way to commemorate, commiserate, and celebrate their dead moms in a new way. She now does her work online and offline. She blogs about the complexities of grief, she designs sassy grief cards, and collaborates with other end-of-life professionals to host workshops about grief. Elisa, I am so stoked to have you here on the show today because I found you, I like tracked you down on the internet um, after reading a Modern Loss article about commemorative jewelry for grief. And I ended up tracking down everybody who was in that article, but your pins, the Dead Moms Club, spoke out to me the most, A, because I've lost my own mother, and B, because I have never seen something that expresses grief so like simply and so publicly, but not, you know, without words. And I just thought that was super cool. Um, so if you could please start us off with your lost story, and then eventually we'll get into that creation story of the pins as well. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you um, so much for having me today. It was so great to to hear from you and have you so enthusiastic about the pins because it was something that, you know, was born out of something um, quite rough and obviously the death of my mom. Um, but it, yeah, it was just great to hear from you. So my mom, uh, Deborah Ball Forneray, um, she died in October, 2016. And she had been sick for a lot of my life, just in and out of the hospital, um, had lots of different health complications. When she was sick, she was quite sick um, and, you know, really down for the count in the hospital for days, weeks, uh, whatever it was on end. Um, but she, when she was on, one of my like, you know, most beautiful memories about my mom is just how on and vibrant and loving and empathetic she always was. Um, so in September of 2016, my sister got married, my younger sister, um, and at the wedding, right after <laughs> the reception and everything, the dancing, the partying had ended, my mom fell um, in the venue. And so she ended up in the hospital overnight that night, was out by the Monday, um, and then I got on a plane to Scotland and was moving to Scotland with my now fiance. And, um, you know, a couple days, my mom was fine. We'd been texting, talking to my parents. I'd landed. I was settling in. It was something that my partner and I had, had planned for a long time. Um, and then over the weekend, got a call from my dad, and he told me I needed to come home. And with my mom being sick for so long, um, it was always, and I've traveled a lot and I like moved all over the world for my undergrad and since my undergrad and just forever. And my dad always told me whenever my mom would get sick, he would say, you know, she is okay. She's going to be okay. But when she's not okay and I need you to come home, I will tell you, just trust me. Um, and that weekend, uh, the first weekend of October that year, when my dad called me while I was in Scotland, he said, you need to get on a plane and this is the time that you need to come home. So I jumped on a plane, flew back from Scotland to California. <laughs> so like all of this was happening in California. <laughs> um, and then I landed and a couple days later after being in the ICU, uh, my mom died. And so she, um, she passed in the ICU and didn't really have any plans for her funeral. So I was sort of 
you know, the first step into my grief journey um, and loss in this whole period of um, exploring grief and loss was being the person responsible for planning my mom's funeral that weekend. Um, so yeah, that's, that's the, you know, the turning point of really what happened um, and how I lost my mom. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. And also, this is something that sometimes happens on coming back, but sometimes not, is that you said her name right at the beginning. And I think that's so powerfully important. Yeah, absolutely. I um, I host Death Over Dinners, and I always like to start the Death Over Dinner with everyone making a toast to the person that they're there celebrating or thinking about or talking about that they've lost, and we all need to say that person's name. And so whenever I talk about my mom or my loss or my journey or my work, I really like to make a point as often as possible to say my mom's name. Um, so that she's not just like my dead mom, like she was a person and she had an existence and an identity outside of being my mom and being my dead mom for so long, um, that I, I really like to honor her in that way. And it's, I don't get to hear it all the time. Um, cause she's, you know, people talk to me about her sometimes, but it's nice just to hear it and say it every once in a while when I have the opportunity. Yeah, that's something I feel like resonates with so many of our grief growers experience as well. The listeners of the show is that um, I've been told sometimes I feel like I'm the only one that will say their name anymore. Yeah. Especially when, you know, and maybe you've experienced this, especially doing work in this space. um, I find myself introducing my mom to people for the first time. Um, a lot of the people that I'm meeting and working with and, and getting familiar with and doing this grief work with, you know, they've never met my mom. They don't know my mom. They don't know my mom's name. Um, They haven't known me for 30 years to remember my mom's name or my dad's name to ask how he's doing. So, you know, it's, it's this introduction that people that are new to my life never got and really only get from me. Um, So I think it's, it's really special. And I think that I know a lot of people like to take the time and have, you know, like rituals set out for being able to honor someone. And I think just being able to talk about and say my mom's name as much as possible is is really um, impactful for me. It makes her, you know, more of a person that I can remember as a whole person versus just the experiences that I'm having and the thoughts that I'm having since losing her. Yeah, it... um it brings the whole self back. I'm drawing a circle in the air. I know you can't see it on this end and our grief court can't see it either, but I'm drawing a circle. I promise I am uh, with my arms, just this holistic picture of, oh, there's the whole person, not just life in the after. I think the next direction I want to go is a question I wrote down while you were speaking. Um, there was a phrase that you used that your introduction to grief was all of a sudden being the person responsible for coordinating all of the details. Uh, and I'm wondering as a younger sister and as not a spouse, kind of how were you made that person, uh, in your family? And also where did time to grieve fit within all of that? Yeah. So one note, Yes, my sister is married before me, but I am older. Oh my <laughs> so goodness, that's I'm right. 
It's so fair. So I'm I'm the older sister. Um and I think so I, I've talked to my grief counselor, my therapist about this a lot. And it's, it was like one of the first things where I was like, this is why you see a grief counselor. Cause they explain this stuff to you that you didn't know was going on. Right. So she told me in one of our first sessions after we talked, like you're a planner, you find comfort in having, you know, control over situations where you can plan, you can create lists, you can, organize things, you can set things in motion and you feel like there's this progress and a sense of peace when things are in your hands. And I think that when we were talking about the opportunity to plan my mom's funeral with my dad, um, I love spreadsheets. I love writing. I love communicating and I love control and planning. And I think that, you know, my younger sister was not in a place where she wanted to be planning everything and reaching out to people and organizing and juggling and doing all of that. And so she didn't take on that responsibility. And with my dad, you know, he was going through something that was such a bigger loss for him as the person who spent every day with my mom for over 30 years um, that I could step in and say, yo, this is my jam. Like, this is what I do for my nine to five. I have a event event planning background and experience. This is something that I can do to contribute that will be meaningful and that will be helpful to the situation and I can thrive in it. And I think it was for me, like, it was either that or sit and watch Gilmore Girls and drink whiskey in the middle of the day, which did end up happening after the funeral. But like for me to be able to just really contribute something, um, I think it honestly gave me a lot of peace. And it was a really beautiful way for me to talk to my family and to talk to the people that were coming and to talk to like the caterer about my mom in like a positive way where we could celebrate her and think about positive, fun things to do at her memorial um, versus just sitting with my dad and, you know, going to multiple, multiple funeral homes and having to pick up her ashes and, you know, dealing with death certificates and picking up her stuff from the hospital. Like for me, it was a good balance um, and a, a good chance to balance my grieving that was positive and my grieving that was really negative. I hear that. And it totally resonates with something that a previous podcast guest, uh, Megan Devine says on how best to help people who are grieving is to not take these tasks away from them. Because for many of them, it's the final act of love or the final act of devotion that they get to have for their loved one. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, so we, we hosted my mom's service in our backyard at my dad's house. I call it my dad's house now, but at my parents' house, um, where I grew up. And so we, you know, had gathered people there and brought all of our family in from Canada because my mom was Canadian and it was really a chance to be in a space where it still really felt because it had only been a couple of days 
um, like she was still there with us, you know, and it wasn't like I was in denial and I was like, she's just at the grocery store or like she's taking a nap, but it still very much felt like things that she touched were in places that she had just touched them. And her spot on the couch was still her spot on the couch, which years later, you know, will like sink into it now. Um, and I think you're right in that it really was a chance for me to feel like I was honoring her and her presence there still. And not just thinking back the longer, you know, I go and my family goes um, without her. And it's, it's no longer that thinking back, reflecting of the time she was once there. Like there was still such a, a presence because it had happened so recently. Mm-hmm. That's something I was thinking on too, is that you're going on year three this year. And yeah. that's like, whoa, really soon. <laughs> um, still, and like time means nothing in grief. I was working on a written piece this weekend and I'm like, time is this fluid, bendy, weird thing where, you know, sometimes seconds can feel like years and then years can feel like the blink of an eye. So like time does weird things when we're grieving. Um, but hmm, let's see what direction we can go next with this. Can you speak to the power of, or maybe even just the usefulness of having a therapist or like a sounding board for grief? Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yes. It is like, I think for me, what's been so special about having a third party is it takes the pressure off of myself to figure stuff out, which I do very publicly, obviously, you know, we're here um, because I put my work on the internet and on Instagram and on Facebook and everywhere, but I do my work so publicly, but still have a lot to work on. My partner um, had met my mom twice before she died Um, my dad is dealing with his grief. My sister is dealing with her grief. Having an outlet that is just for me to work through my grief and my grieving and how I'm navigating it through all of these life experiences, um, has just been so important. And I think I'm so grateful for the you know, the privilege and the time and the money to be able to see a counselor. Um, because I think that there obviously are so many people that don't have that and carry so much of this. And I have an outlet every two weeks that I can talk to about things that, yeah, I could talk to all of those other people in my life about. Um, but sometimes it's good to just unload it on someone else who, you know, doesn't have to worry about taking care of me all the time. And I think that it was something that I was really open to in the beginning. And um, just from talking to people and having a couple of friends who lost parents around the same time that I did, um, hearing from them that support groups and grief counselors and therapists was just like the way to go. I, I just jumped in and it's been really, really helpful for me. I think that's something really special to have a group of people around you who are like, this has happened to us too. Um, I think that's something that a lot of people who face grief in their 20s and 30s do not have is this feeling of, mm-hmm. oh my God, one of my parents or even both of my parents are dead. And everybody around me is like, 
doing things like getting married or getting their first salary job or like moving for the first time. And they have both parents there to witness them in that. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, I kind of, this is going to be a two part question, but what did you draw most from this group of people who had also lost a parent around the same time that you lost your mom? And also what's like the scariest thing about that though? The scariest thing about like losing a mom really early on in your life. My mom. (laughs) That's a big question. (laughs) Um, Maybe I shouldn't have put them together, but there they are. Um. (laughs) No. Yeah. Um, So the first question, what I drew from it has just been being able to have someone else say and multiple friends say like, no, I hear you. You're not going crazy or no, I hear you. People said that to me too. And they're the ones that messed up or I hear you every day is hard, not just on mother's day or your mom's birthday or Christmas when people reach out. Um, I think that that alignment and that understanding that there were other people who just have bad Tuesdays and won't look at me like it's taken me too long to get over something or who are worried that if I have too many bad Tuesdays in a row that something really bad is happening and I'm not getting over my grief. Um, That has just been incredible for me. And I think that knowing people who are willing to talk to me about this stuff because they've experienced it themselves has been really special. And I think too, it's not just, you know, I do the work that I do one because it's a creative outlet and two, because I enjoy listening to people and talking to people about what they're going through, because I think that what's really important is that support system wherever you can find it. And it's great having friends in person that I can talk to. It's great having friends and family around the world that I talk to It's also really great to have just people who are young, my age, who know what's going on, um, who are on the internet. And it's been really incredible to draw from their strength and their openness, um, whether they're doing it professionally or just like in modern loss, like private groups and stuff like that. But I think that it's just been, it's been so good to have people who can say to me, yeah, like this is hard. You're not going nuts. It's been a year. It's been two years. The third year is going to be really hard. You know, I'm getting married this year and I can talk to people who aren't just like, oh, we'll like put a picture of your mom on a table in a corner and it'll be awesome. And we'll like, you know, say a poem for her, but friends who are like, no, like it's going to suck and you're going to cry and I'll be there with a waterproof mascara because I did this myself. Um, I think that the reality check and the frankness from those people has just been incredible to me. Um, And then I guess the second part of your question, what's been the scariest thing about losing my mom? Um, So far, (laughs) I think it's navigating all of the things that you listed, which was, you know, moving to another city in Canada. Um, you know, having my third salary job in a new country. I'm getting married this year in September. Um, I turned 30 a couple of weeks ago. 
all of those milestones, like they're hitting me right now. And they're all things that are really, really exciting in a lot of ways and so painful and scary um, at the same time. And there are so many milestones to come. And I think what's, you know, for me, some days, I think my answer to this would be really different. Some days, you know, my answer would be like, oh yeah, all those things that have already happened. Other days, the scariest stuff to me is like what hasn't happened yet and how Mm. I'm going to get through it. You know, having kids without my mom, um, turning 50 without my mom, retiring, you know, people still have their parents around for that stuff. And I don't know what it's going to be like. And right now I'm feeling pretty okay about that kind of stuff because I know that I have great support systems around me. Um, and I know that the stuff that's been really hard so far, um, I've had incredible people around for, um, and done a lot of work just to keep myself, you know, like just surviving. (laughs) Um, but I have, I have no idea what the rest of the milestones that I'm going to hit are going to be like, and that, that can be pretty scary sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Often a lot of grief comes from, I think you phrase that perfectly, what hasn't happened yet. And it's like, I have to, it's not just, everybody says one day at a time, which like granted, that's often how you survive in grief is if I can just make it through the next 10 minutes or the next hour, the next day or whatever. Um, But then also there is that weight that like, it kind of sits over your eyebrows, like a visor. And it's like, I'm seeing into the future and I'm going to have to do one day at a time for an indeterminable amount of time without this person. And so there's always some part of us that knows that our future will stretch much further without them than it did with them generally. And that's, that's incredibly hard. So yeah. um, I mean, great answer, heartbreaking answer, but yeah, that's really resonating in my own story and space as well. I'm sure as with, listeners of this show too. Um, how did all of this make it online? Like what was the moment where you were like, I, I don't know how it started. Like, was it, was it writing or creating or hosting uh, death over dinners or, cause this is all, you host a conglomerate of grief affiliated, honoring, supporting activities and outlets online. That's really cool. So like you, you have your, um, you have your hands on a lot of pies, which is neat. Uh, but at the same time, I wonder where the point of entry is for you. Yeah. So this is always so weird for me to think about. I'm like, was this meant to be, um, in 2015, December, 2015, I was laid off from a startup that I was working at in new Orleans. My background is in writing and editing and creative work. Um, and when I, I was editing for this startup and got laid off, the company went under and my designer and I that I had been working with were like, let's just float for a while. Um, we're going to like look for jobs in New York and, and do all of this. But at the same time, let's like do something creative. Let's use our time well. And we ended up putting together a project um, that was all focused on death. So the first theme of this broadsheet that we'd created, we were running around doing photo shoots, everything all focused on death 
and dying and how people creatively explore death and all of the different cultural, um, artistic connections to death that there are in the world. So that was the December before my mom died. And the month before we went to print, we were wrapping everything up. We'd done shoots and collected stories from people and done all this work, designed this whole thing to go sell in London. And then my mom died. So that was my entry into like working on death publicly and creatively. And after doing all of that work, um, you know, my mom died. I ended up going back to the UK, like back to Scotland, moved back with my fiance, um, my now fiance, and went down to London and started selling this broadsheet and did a pop-up with um in partnership with with another magazine at Ace Hotel down there. And people like loved it, want to talk about death, people were all about death, people loved it. And I was like, oh, cool. I have done this in this abstract way and I've done this abstract project just because we like knew that death would be a thing that would would intrigue people. Um, And then realized I now have a totally personal connection to death and grief and dying and decided once we finished that project and wrapped it up um, to use my connections in that space and my willingness to explore that space Um, to do the same specifically with grief and with mother loss. So I wrapped that project up and it's slowly like you'll see on the back end of my site and like I'll send links still around sometimes um, from that project. Like everything now points to me and my work and my grief projects. Um, But there was this overlap for a while until I, yeah, really realized that like I can talk about other people dying and, you know, ancient rituals and do these photo shoots of like funeral tea ceremonies and doing all that. But like, I should be dealing with my own stuff. And if I'm willing to write about it, I should, and I should put it out there. And the response was really positive. Um, It, you know, it's one of those things and people are like, oh, that's so interesting. And I'm sure, I'm sure you hear this all the time. People are like, oh, that's so interesting. I've never heard like anybody, you know, <laughs> do work about this. And I'm like, there are so many people, there's so many books. Like we just aren't, you know, taught to openly look for this stuff and read about it and talk about it and listen to podcasts about it. Um, <laughs> like there are podcasts so, about death and grief and yeah, loss. I'm like, oh no, there are podcasts about every, it's almost <laughs> like that there's that kind of inappropriate unrule that rule of the internet of like, if it exists, there is porn of it. And now the rule exactly. is, is if it exists, there's a podcast about it. And like, it, <laughs> I have found people, I mean, there are people who do nothing but go on cruise ships and host podcasts about it. There are people who talk about hair products. There are people who rewatch the golden girls and do a podcast on every single episode and the history behind it. Like it, it's an insane platform to be on, but I'm laughing at your story because it's like the universe somehow bestowed upon you grief and death 101. And then you graduated and went to grad school grief where you actually had to experience it for yourself. Um, And that's kind of, that's putting it through more of a playful lens than I think it needs necessarily. But listening to you, you seem to have such roots in the ground about grief and where you exist in that universe. And I think that comes from a lot of external support, especially in the early days. But like, you kind of had a primer on it, for lack of better phrasing. Oh, yeah, I think it was what was really um, 
important was I spent almost an entire year talking about death and talking to people about death and reading stuff about death and writing stuff about death. I like just was thinking about it all the time. And it wasn't specifically always related to grief. Um, but it was just, it was an incredible opportunity to open myself up to the conversations before I started having them about myself and my mom and the work that I'm doing. You know, I was at like taxidermy conventions in New Jersey talking to people about what it meant to be stuffing dead animals and like the loss of life for all these animals. Like it was just, it, it, like you said, it was this introduction, um, to what it was like to have these weird, hard conversations that nobody really wants to have. Um, and I, I feel really lucky because I think that I could have been hit with this and, you know, seeing all of the books that I have on my bookshelf now, it could have been the first time that I was reading about this stuff and trying to figure it out. But honestly, I'd had so much time just to prep myself before that jumping into resources and creating my own um, felt really beautiful and really special and really natural. This is definitely a leading question, but do you think the world should have like a death primer? Yes. Yes, 100%. I think I find it so strange and unfortunate that one of the things that we all know from such a young age is that we're all going to die. Like, we know it. We see it around us. We know it. It's in Disney movies. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's there. And we will avoid it. And I think that the thing is too, like we're lucky um, right now, especially just to see how many resources um, are out in the world and going mainstream and people have access to them. Um, And I think that taking advantage of those resources and putting them in front of people and getting people comfortable having the conversations earlier is just so crucial because they don't, you know, and this is one thing that, you know, I always say like, it's going to be hard sometimes. It doesn't have to be hard. It doesn't have to be scary. It doesn't have to be morbid. I laugh all the time. I haven't had an interview about this stuff yet or done a workshop or stood up in front of people or had conversations at work where I haven't laughed because there is something about this that makes it really therapeutic to laugh um, and really important to laugh and to smile and to not just think about death as this like icky, scary one day, but I'm not going to deal with it right now thing. And I think, you know, we study so many other things and are prepped for so many other things in life that I think that this just needs to be on the list and it needs to be mandatory for everyone because it's also not just about us and us dying and our death that we're going to face one day, mm-hmm. our generation is going to see so much death very close to us that we need to be better prepared to take care of other people and ourselves in those situations. I think again, that was so well phrased and yeah, when people talk about taking courses on death, they're like, Oh, you mean on how to write a will? I'm like, no, we're not just talking about when you die. (laughs) Not to be, you know, (laughs) 
<laughs> oh, you're so selfish. It's not about your death. It's <laughs> it's the deaths of all the people around you. I mean, parents, friends, spouses, coworkers. It's, I mean, almost if you try really hard, you could have a death in your six degree circle of separation, like weekly. If you really paid close attention, Absolutely. you could certainly yeah. recognize that like, oh, my friend from kindergarten's grandmother died this week or my boss's dad died this week or like all of that you could certainly it's happening all the time yeah and i think you know who doesn't want to be better equipped to take care of those people whether it's by sending a text or writing an email or reaching out on facebook or just thinking about it, because I think that's one thing. Um, it takes, you know, and I get it. It takes a lot sometimes for people to reach out or figure out what they're going to say. But just thinking about it, being curious about it, looking at articles and reading books and better understanding how one day at least you can be more prepared to, you know, reach out and take care of someone else. Like, I think we should just be paying more attention to all of the opportunities that are out there to take better care of the people around us who are experiencing loss, because you're right, you know, there it's everywhere. It's so close and there, it can mean so much um, to just have someone who's not like your best friend that's going to text you every night or your dad or your mom who's going to help take care of you when you experience a loss like it it can mean a lot coming from someone that's within those six degrees even if they're a little removed um and i think we should just be be more prepared to to support people what was the best maybe a moment that stands out in your mind but maybe the best moment that someone supported you in the death of your mom, whether it was a text or a Facebook message or what have you. Um, and what is a way, maybe your favorite way to support someone who you've just heard news that someone in their life has died? Can I just think for a second? Absolutely. Oh yeah. yeah. I'm thinking... So, I also don't do interviews or workshops without crying. <laughs> I feel like I'm going to cry right now. This always happens. This is the show <laughs> for it. I'm always crying. <laughs> um, I mean, same. So, <laughs> so, when my mom died, um, my I was, yeah, like I said, I was moving over to Scotland and my, my partner's mom was coming to visit a couple weeks after we moved back. So it was, you know, I'd come back and spent a couple weeks with my dad, just like dealing with funeral and, and, you know, with people being in town and then everybody left. And then it was just me and my dad for a little while. And, you know, my, my partner and I, and, and my dad talked about, okay, my mom just died, but it was the first time because my partner's from Australia. So his mom had come over to Scotland all the way from Australia. It was like, this is going to be the first time that I can meet a family member. We'd planned this for so long. Like, it's going to be this incredible opportunity. But also, like, 
do you need to go spend all of this time like with somebody else's mom when yours just died? Like, oh, it could be weird. Um, and so I I ended up going back like a couple days before um, I met her. And so I I went and I met up with her and it was one of those things where I wasn't working because um, I was like doing doing stuff over there and just going up and down to London and like just sort of hanging out in my grief and my like shock and just trying to be like, Oh, my mom just died. And I live in a totally new place. Um, I was like sitting in all that. But when I met her, um, we, we were in a place where like my partner was working and her and I would just like spend the day together. So it'd be like all afternoon, you know, we'd walk around, we'd hang out and she bought me, Um, And I just love and respect her so much for being so open um, and honest with me. So soon after my mom had died, she, she bought me um, a jewelry box to keep my mom's wedding ring in. Because one of the things that I got when my mom died and we talked about this was I got all of her jewelry. Um, so I just have like bags and bags of my mom's jewelry. And that was one thing that once everybody had left, I spent the couple of weeks that I stayed with my dad just every day, just going through her jewelry, going like pulling out cabinets, sitting on the couch, watching TV and sorting through all of her jewelry. And so when I got there, um, his mom bought me this little ceramic, like gorgeous floral, um, ring box that I keep next to, um, our bed now and I keep my mom's rings in it and I keep my engagement ring in it. Um, and it was just, it meant a lot that she would spend the time with me. And it spent, it meant a lot that she would talk to me about my mom and my grief. Um, but it just was such a thoughtful, beautiful thing that I see every day and touch every day and um, is a place for me to keep something of my mom's that really honors how special those things were because I don't I don't wear them um like I don't I wear my engagement ring but I don't I don't wear my mom's wedding ring um but it it means a lot to have it sitting somewhere special that's so close to me and from you know a woman that is gonna act as a mom for me now for the rest of our lives um like that just meant the world to me And what I like to do for people, um, it's interesting. I, we were watching the Super Bowl um, yesterday and I, I was with a girl and, and she came up to me um, and I, I'd met her once and like, we like know each other around the internet and stuff, but she came up to me and she's like, I thought of you yesterday because my friend's baby died yesterday. And I haven't known what to do. And she's like, I just want to support them. And I just want to be there. But I don't know what to do. And, you know, I asked her, what are you good at? And what are you willing to do? Not, what do you think they need? Like, what, you know, what have you already asked them? What have you offered? But what are you good at? What can you do? Are you close with their kids? Are you, do you, she's an artist, like, could she do art with them? Whatever it is. Um, because I think that one of the things that I find to be really hard is when you lose someone, 
a lot of people are like, I'll do anything. Like, just let me know. Reach out anytime. I can help. I can help. And then some of the stuff that you need, they can't actually do, or they probably don't want to do. Because some of the stuff they need is for someone to like wash my dirty underwear that I haven't washed in a week, or like come over and let me cry on them for a while, or, you know, drive. I don't have kids, but, you know, have people drive your kids to school and they've offered, but then they don't have a car, so they can't actually do the thing that you need them to do. So mm-hmm. I think one of the most important things is to recognize what you can actually do for someone and accomplish for them and then offer specific things. And that's what I spent, you know, the time with her yesterday going through was like, what do you have time for? What can you actually do? And what then can you offer to her and say, if there are specific things that you need outside of this, let me know, we can figure it out. But not just say, I'll do anything. I'll be there whenever you need. Because honestly, you know, 99 probably percent of people aren't going to come over to your house at two o'clock in the morning if you call them, even if that's what they said they would do. Um, So being realistic is something that I kind of like to trigger for people um, in the beginning. And when I'm trying to support someone or talk to someone about how they're going to support someone else. I think that's perfect. And it hilariously reminds me of a, this is oddly a very vulgar podcast episode. It reminds me of a vulgar George Carlin sketch where (laughs) (laughs) he talks about um, how generally husbands die before their wives. He's like, because that's the way it goes. And a lot of times at the funeral, other men try to take advantage of these women who have just recently lost husbands by using the phrase, let me know if there's anything, anything I can ever do for you, thinking that they're going to get some action or, you know, whatever to see her or whatever. And and George Carlin's like, do it. Call his effing bluff. Make him come clean the gutters. Do the upstairs toilet. Get a bulldozer. There's a sewer line that's broken in the front yard. And like, he's like, call their bluff. If they say they're going to do anything, call him on it. And it's just this, this, it it cracks me up because I mean the opposite is true in my world uh where my mother went first and so witnessing my dad as the grieving person was different and there weren't like lady cougars like coming in after him um and all this stuff because I the generally I'm speaking in terms of generalizations and of course he's a comedian as well and so he speaks in terms of generalizations too but that's just not how grief works and when women say let me know if there's anything I can do there's usually like a an earnest not like a I'm trying to I'm yeah, trying it's to like a cat. It's an offer of a casserole. Yeah, yes, it's a casserole. Thank you. That's the perfect way to phrase that. But I think that's such that's such a cool inquiry that you pose to people. Two questions: Is what are you good at, and what are you willing to do? Because it shifts this focus back to what are my gifts and what can I offer at this time, as opposed to trying to guess at what grieving people need. Because grieving people don't always know what they need. And even then, if they do know what they need, how willing are they to ask for it because they don't want to burden other people or they don't have the energy to ask other people or all this other stuff. Um, and then like you said, it might not even be the thing that they want. So, so contribute something, but have it be heartfelt, have it be close to you, have it be something you're willing to do because you don't want to make it something that you do out of, um, remorse or would have these like harder, regret feelings or I can't afford this, but I'm doing it anyway, or I don't have time for this, but I'm doing it anyway. There's a lot of other like 
gross emotions that can get tied up in that. I'm like, we're already doing enough by grieving. Like, let's not invite all these other like resentful emotions along for the party. So I just think that's really wise. Um, And I actually want to use this as a segue to get into how the pins came into existence, because I think that's the closest connection that I have with you. But I think a lot of people, especially on Instagram and stuff where it's such a visual medium, know you as the person who makes the Dead Bombs Club pins as like a physical object from a creative. Mm -hmm. I, you know, it comes back to getting all of my mom's jewelry. Mom had so much jewelry. And (laughs) a lot of it is like gorgeous stuff. Some of it I wear, a lot of it I don't. But I like hoarded it, like hoarded it so hard and was just like, packing her jewelry into like gallon sized Ziploc bags. Like I have to take all of this with me. It will not be lost. Um, and I realized the stuff that I wear is like super fun, super funky. And people always point it out and they're like, Oh my God, that's so cool. Where did you get that? Oh, it was my mom's. Oh my gosh. Those earrings are so pretty. Where'd you get those? Oh, they were my mom's. And I realized this little token that could give me an opportunity to talk about my mom and have somebody connect with me and say, Oh, this is like really beautiful. Where did you get it? Um, and to be able to like think about my mom, have a conversation about my mom and just really, you know, be excited and happy about something in a conversation related to my mom. That was just really special for the first while that I was like wearing all of this jewelry, taking it out of the bags, going through the like, roller coaster of up down okay I'm gonna go through this bag today find stuff cry you know be really sad then be really happy when I go out and somebody noticed it so after I'd been wearing her stuff for a while um and writing and creating I I worked with a woman in Toronto um Julia Monson to create some grief cards I just realized like not everybody gets 10 gallon size Ziploc bags of jewelry from their mom, but it could be really special to give people something that they can wear to spark those conversations and to give people something that they could wear or keep, you know, even inside of their jacket so that they can remember and know that it's there and it's something beautiful that it commemorates their mom. Um, Giving people that would just be a really awesome way to open up the world to more conversations about death and grief and mother's mother loss and so I'd been working on some other projects and with the pins just realized you know I wear my stuff every day but not everybody has that and maybe people will like them (laughs) then they did so it's been really awesome because I you know I worked with a designer um, it was just, it was incredible working with him because I said, okay, I know that I want to make pins. Um, I want them to say dead mom's club. I don't want it to be just like another lapel pin on somebody's jacket. Like I want it to say what we're trying to get people to recognize and open up about and talk about, um, go like, just go send me some stuff. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm not a designer. I don't know. I do words. I don't do pictures. Mm-hmm. and so he sent me back just these incredibly 
thoughtful explanations of both of the pins. And with the Starry Night one, he was like, I think this is just a really special way for people to think about, you know, looking out into the stars and being able to know that their mom is maybe out there somewhere or connecting in this abstract way with their mom and this laugh. And I was just like sobbing at my computer. He's in Australia. So I'm like sobbing at my computer. Yes, yes, yes. This is it. Um, so it just kind of like grew out of this relationship with us and me really respecting how thoughtful he was about the project and, and the assignment and the contract. Um, and yeah. And I think for me, I wear a lot of floral stuff. My mom loved flowers. And one of the things that was really annoying um, about her funeral was that I thought, oh, I'm going to ask everyone instead of bringing booze and food, because we have more than enough booze and food, I'm going to ask everyone to bring flowers so that we can just like deck it out. We don't need to get a florist to decorate the backyard. I'm going to have everyone bring sunflowers. And then I spent an afternoon just filling our garbage cans with all of the sunflowers once Mm -hmm. they died. So the floral pin came out of me wanting something floral and like us talking about something floral that wasn't going to die. And that was something that you could give to someone and flowers that you could like put on your lapel on Mother's Day when you can't buy flowers for your mom anymore. Um, And having something that was special to me because I love flowers and I love gardens and my mom loved her garden and my dad actually spread some of my mom's ashes in her garden. Um, So that was like really, really special for me. But then also something that I was hoping that a lot of people could resonate with, um, which is just something really beautiful that isn't going to (laughs) die. So that's, that's where I I came to those two from. Um, so yeah, I love them so much. And I was hoping that we were getting to hear the complete stories behind them. Um, because of course I came to it with my own stories, but I think they both fit so well. Uh, the, I chose the rose one for grief growers that haven't seen the picture on my Instagram yet. I have the rose pin that says dead mom's club. Uh, partially for selfish reasons because I was a florist for a while here in Chicago. And so I just have a connection (laughs) with flowers. Um, But then also because my tagline for this podcast is because even through grief, we were growing. And it's something that came to me when I was journaling. My journals used to be conversations to my mom uh, after her death. And then they became conversations to my future self. And now they're just conversations. Um, but that phrase came to me once when I was journaling and I was like, Oh, if I ever really make something of this and put it on the internet, this will be what ties it all together because whether or not we're conscious of it, we are always growing, uh, through our grief. And maybe, you know, people like to press on this idea of, you know, it being progress or grief being good for you or like needing to, you know, teach you some kind of big life lesson. I'm like, people don't need to die for that to happen. Um, but we, we learn more about ourselves. We learn how to take care of ourselves and we learn more about other people and how to take care of other people in our grief and whether or not we consciously acknowledge that growth or unconsciously acknowledge that growth, it's happening. Um, and that's just something that has so deeply resonated with me and my work. Uh, plus it's just really pretty <laughs> and everything else I wear is black. So I'm like, I can't have something else black in my life. So I need to have a flower somewhere. So, um, I'm excited. You've already gotten so many cool compliments on it. Like um, I take the train to work every day. And so a lot of people pointed it out and then they don't read the fine print and then they do. And then it's even cooler. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, I work with grief and now I'm repping the dead mom's club. <laughs> 
<laughs> that happened to me in Seattle when I was first selling the pins. I was down in Seattle, um, and I like have a jean jacket that I just sort of pin everything to. And I had them on there, and this guy came up to me in coffee shop. He's like, "Oh, your pins are so cool. That one's so cool. That one's so cool. That one's so cool." Oh, it's okay. I'm wearing this for a reason. Like, I also made this. It's okay. And he was like, oh, okay. And then actually, he's like, oh, wait, my boss's mom died. I'm going to go get her. And I was like, this is why I do this. You're really freaked out, but at least you like (laughs) had this moment where you could connect it and help somebody else. So, yeah, it was hilarious. He just felt so gross and weird about it after looking at all of my like, pineapples and dinosaurs and yeah it was it was awesome though so I'm glad that you get good reactions from it and that it means something so different and special to you like that's really exciting for me to hear it's neat they're I mean props to you and props to your designer as well because they're vague enough that we can thrust our own interpretations on them but also when you hear the story you're like oh that makes me love it even more it's not so Mm. It's not so pigeonholed that like no one can identify with it or it belongs to you alone. It's like it's very much a universal sentiment with like a tongue in cheek aspect as well. Uh, And I like it, too, because for the most part, they're gender neutral. So like you can be a part of the Dead Moms Club, whether or not you like flowers or stars. So like it's you, you can put it on jean jackets or wallets or belts or wherever you festoon things with your identity. Yeah, that was the goal. Um, just because, you know, I I love that there's motherless daughters groups out there and so much work that people are doing in that space. But I, you know, a lot of the people that I know who are my age, like friends of mine, the first couple that I met were all dudes that lost their mom. Um, and I was like, I don't like everybody's mom is gonna die. <laughs> like not just girls and not just girls who like pretty things. So I think <laughs> That's been really, that's been like really important for me. And I'm glad that it feels that way um, to you because yeah, anybody can wear a pin and anybody can pin it anywhere. Um, and all of our moms are going to die. So, yeah, yeah. it's just perfect. Um, I want to close out and ask people where they can find you and get a pin of their own. Uh, and also where they can find the rest of your grief work and exciting happenings as well. Yeah. So everything I do for the most part is on my website, um, which do you want me to give the URL? Yes. And then it will go on the show notes as well. Okay. Awesome. So the URL is www.alicafornert, or as my mom would say, F is in Frank, O-R- N is in Nancy, E-R-E-T.com. That is like my favorite way. I loved hearing her say that on the phone all the time. <laughs> I say it whenever I can now. <laughs> um, so that's my website. And then I'm on Instagram. It's just my name um, at A-L-I-C-A dot F-O-R-N-E-R-E-T. And then I'm on Facebook. You can search my name or um, at grief is hard A-S. That's my handle on Facebook. Um, and yeah, I like run around, um, the U S and Canada doing workshops and I've got some big stuff coming up this year, specifically in Vancouver, um, Seattle, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. So I'll keep you updated on that. And yeah, that's where anyone can find me. And like, I, I always like to put this out there. Like people don't have to want to pin, they don't have to sit through all of my articles. They don't have to 
look at everything on my Instagram. Like if people just want to chat, they can message me, they can email me. Like I just love hearing stories and talking to people about whatever it is they need. So I encourage anyone to reach out to me through any of those platforms, any way they feel um, like would be the best for them. Really like absolute last question before you go. Um, Something that tickled me and gave me an immense amount of joy is seeing your handle is death is hard AF. uh, Because as so many of us younger listeners will know AF is stand in for as the F word. Uh, So if something is hard (laughs) AF, it's like really hard to do. But then also I'm like, oh my God, it's her initials. (laughs) I'm like, it makes so much sense to my brain. (laughs) And I was like, oh my God, death is hard as F word. Um, I mean, I could say it on this pod. It's a podcast. It's not the FCC. So I could certainly say death is hard as fuck on here. But, but it just gave me so much absolute joy to be like, oh my God, it's your initials. And it's like a pop culture slang phrase. now. <laughs> yeah, I felt oh. very lucky to have the initials that I do when I thought that up. I'm, so I'm glad you got a laugh out of that too. <laughs> well, I saw it and I was like, I wonder if she knows. <laughs> and I'm like, of course she knows. <laughs> so brought me such an immense amount of joy. Um, Alisa, thank you so much for coming on, coming back today and providing us with so many uh, moments of self-inquiry, but also just these moments of wonderful laughter. This has been so much fun today. Thank you so much for having me. This was really, really fun. Um, And I just appreciate your time and all of your support and enthusiasm. Um, This was, yeah, this was just incredible. So thank you. So that's all for this episode of Coming Back. Thank you so, so much to Elisa Forneray, who came on to laugh with us today, and how we all need to talk about death and dying a lot, lot more. Elisa came back by leaning on her friends who also lost parents young and by writing about her grief online. You can also find a link to Elisa's many project and appearances as well as her dead mom's club lapel pins in the show notes. For grief support beyond this podcast, go to patreon.com slash Shelby where you can pledge for as little as $1 per month and receive instant access to a monthly grief support hangout with me. You can also apply for private grief coaching with me at shelbyforsythia.com slash grief dash coaching. If you liked what you heard today, subscribe to Coming Back on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and tell a friend about Coming Back, because you never know what someone you love is going through. Thank you always to Mr. Eddie Goldstein, who composed our theme music. You can find me on Facebook at Shelby Forsythia Intuitive Grief Guide, Instagram at Grief Guide Shelby Forsythia, or simply shelbyforsythia.com. If you'd like to leave a question or a comment for a future show, leave a voicemail or text 312-725-3043 or email me at shelby at shelbyforsythia.com. As always, my dear grief growers, it was beautiful sharing this space and time with you today. I see you. I am proud of you and the work that you're doing in the world. And I love you. Because even through grief, we are growing.